Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up next on the Leverboard Sailing Podcast. So, you know, we went to a little village called Yandua uh, in Fiji. I do some spearfishing and a friend and I shot this really big fish and we gave it to the village. We took some photos, laminated it, gave it to the to the head man, the Tornikoro and the chief. We go back a year later to go drink kava with these guys and uh, the picture's still up on the chief's wall. And, you know, you're all welcome and the, the old guys would look at the picture of, oh, there's the kefalangi that gave us the fish. And... You know, and, and that sense of, of belonging was really interesting. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week's episode is a mix of exciting adventures and expert advice as I talk with Max and Elizabeth Shaw. They both had successful careers with the Canadian Armed Forces for over 20 years until they decided to retire from the military, sell their house, and go cruising. I ask Max and Elizabeth about their 7-year, 36,000 nautical mile trip in the Pacific Ocean crossing the Pacific with two kids and a four-month-old baby, and exploring off-the-beaten-path islands in the South Pacific. Max and Elizabeth continue to live aboard with their family, and Max now works as a broker, which is where the expert section of today's episode comes in. Max acts as both sellers and a buyer's broker, so as you can imagine, I had a lot of questions about the buying process and what happens behind the scenes. This episode will definitely give you some insight into boat shopping as we talk about the hidden costs and just how you decide how much to offer for a boat and a lot more. So here is my chat with Max and Elizabeth. So I have a lot to cover with you today, but why don't we get started with your seven-year trip in the Pacific? And as I understand it, you left BC, you got to Mexico and you realized you needed to do a bit of a refit on the boat. And while doing the refit, you also had a third baby while in Mexico and consequently crossed the Pacific with a very young baby. Now, I would say that that is quite the start to an adventure, all of that. So what was that experience like? Can you even describe it? All right. Well, I guess, first of all, the trip came about because we were both working really busy jobs. They required us to move every couple of years. We had two little kids that we barely saw. And we said, this is not the life that we want to have. And in fact, we'd had the idea of a third baby for a very long time, but it was never, there was never capacity to add another one to the family. We were just too busy. 
so then we came up with the idea, let's just, we were living in Halifax at the time. Let's go back to Victoria. Let's go back in a boat. Let's go back in a boat via the South Pacific. And once it was said, it we were also drinking of, a little bit of wine at the time, which just, helped with the decision making. A little bit, but it just kind of had to be done. It was one of these kind of deep winter storm conversations that you have when the Christmas holidays have just finished. The presents are put away. Some of the, you know, the chaos has come for a bit. And it's just the two of us talking about what's, what are the years to come? And uh, then the boat that we found was in Anacortes, Washington. John Neal helped us at the time in terms of what we'll be looking for and, and what would we consider. So we found our boat in Anacortes. Once we got to Mexico, the third baby, we realized if we were ever going to have one now is the time. And so he was just part of the deal, part of the conversation. You can't predict these things. You can just be open to them. And uh, he came in perfect timing kind of after the refit and before the departure. Um, and yeah, when we left Mexico to head for eventually New Zealand, uh, he was four and a half months and he had his first birthday once we got into New Zealand. So that was his, that was his first year. Wow. That sounds like a unique experience, I guess. I can't even imagine that not having kids myself. I think, you know, doing the crossing even with two kids anyway would be, you know, quite an experience, and <laughs> let alone with, with a four month old. <laughs> the anchorage we were in, in, uh, in Mexico, La Cruz de Coxley, there was six or seven boats with infants on board and several of them crossed. And uh, so it's not the norm, but it's not completely unusual. But the big thing that we did is we took an additional adult with us for the major crossings. And we did that until he was about two. So we had a friend fly down from BC and sail with us from Mexico to French Polynesia. It should be said that from French Polynesia to New Zealand, you're still 4,500 miles away from your eventual destination. And it was just the two of us sailing the boat with the newborn at that stage. And credit to Max for bas basically single-handing and I stood watches is probably a good way to put it. One of the things that I didn't realize is that um, seasickness can be more of a factor postpartum than any other time before that. And uh, I was not necessarily my best self on that passage overall. I mean, you, you do what you have to do, right? I fed the baby, I stood watches, did all that necessary stuff, but Max really made sure that the boat got there. And yeah, so we, we had that third adult for the major crossings, you know, if they were going to be 10 days, three weeks, whatever, we took someone with us. And otherwise, if it was only three or four days, then we did that ourselves. Yeah, that sounds like a, a smart strategy. But it also goes to explain how versatile this lifestyle can be and, and how anyone in, you know, whether you're a young family with kids or a younger couple or a retired couple or a solo person, you know, it can, it suits kind of uh, all uh, lifestyles, which is uh, really cool. Well, that's something that really struck us when we got to Mexico, because, you know, this was before everybody was doing the, the, the vlogging and, you know, whatnot. And uh, so our understanding of cruising was from a few people we'd met in, in, in Europe or Halifax and, you know, Cruising World and the Steve Dashu books and the party books, which was the all in model, you know, sell up everything, move on to the boat and sail away forever. Um, and then we met people in Mexico that were like six months on, six months off. You know, we met, uh, you know, we friends of ours that would cruise for several months in the South Pacific and leave their boat in Fiji or Tonga or, or, or New Cal. Uh, so there's just, there's so many ways to do it and they're not better or worse. They're just appropriate for their situation. There's, there's lots of ways to do it. It's not just the traditional all-in method. And it also, what we learned was where there's a will, there's a way. We met people from every different background, every type of profession, every age and stage and the one thing they had all in common was they had heard that call to travel and they answered it and they found a way to go but there was not just one model that got people out on the water so you spent years exploring the south pacific so you must know the area quite well and i won't uh, put you on a spot and ask you to reveal your secret best hideouts <laughs> but uh, what what would you say is there a destination or an island somewhere there that you would encourage this maybe say underrated that you would encourage other cruisers to go and visit well we don't want them to all go to our favorite places but uh we certainly 
I mean, we spent the most time out of anywhere in Fiji. Um, and we loved the people of Fiji, the diversity of Fiji. You know, that was amazing. But we also really enjoyed the Marshall Islands, which, again, are not for everyone. Everyone are up in Micronesia. It's a bit of a slog to get there. But, uh, and again, they're not as outlandishly friendly as the Fijians. There's not the big bula as you enter the village. Uh, but once you get to know them and uh, make friends, you know, wonderful people and very remote and they're still using sailing canoes as their main transportation in the outer islands. Yeah, so that was inspirational and gorgeous. And we do a bit of kite surfing and spearfishing and that, that part was world class there. It was unbelievable. So it's maybe worth the trip up a little bit further away, even though it's not quite exactly on the route, but uh, definitely worth visiting. That's the fundamental thing we learned is find a way in general when you're traveling to get a little bit off the beaten path. And you don't often have to go very far to find yourself in a completely unique situation. But the same is true in Canada. You know, you go to a national park and it's crowded with people and you go five minutes away from the visitor center and you're alone in the woods. So it's that same kind of mindset, only with a little further afield to go. Even in Fiji, we went to a place that was barely a day sail from the main check-in port. We thought it would be super, you know, just overrun, used to travelers. You know, there would be no particular welcome for us because it was so close to the main center. Instead, everybody sails right by it and nobody stops in. And for instance, when we went to church with the folks, we were the first ones in their recollection that actually had come anchored and gone into church with them. And that was only a day, like I said, from the main uh, the main check-in ports. You don't have to go very far off the beaten path to find those unique experiences. Well, Tonga was the same thing. Everybody goes to Vavao, which is beautiful, but it's kind of a theme park and people have numbers for all the different anchorages rather than learning the Tongan names. And we tried to entice people to come down to Hapai where we were spending most of our time. It's only 70 miles away. And uh, no, no, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why it was too far. I mean, these are people that sailed across the Pacific. And uh, I mean, in some ways, good. I mean, we had beautiful anchorages to ourselves and surrounded by all the whales and the calving. And But yeah, sometimes putting that little bit of extra effort in makes makes a big difference. And some of our, some of our key memories of our trip, our time in Penryn, Northern Cook Islands, they only get a few people stopping in. You know, that was just an amazing trip. And yeah, it added an extra... Well, it was a bit of a rougher passage to get there and back, but, you know, amazing time when we were there. And it was just, it was a week sail, a little different, only a few hundred miles off the normal path. Yeah. So you obviously had a large area, I mean, the South Pacific to to explore. And I'm, you know, we just talked about how there are so many different types of cruisers and, and people take different routes and explore different areas. And I mean, a lot of people who sort of leave from Canada, go to Mexico and cross the Pacific, end up doing a circumnavigation. But you stayed in one area, albeit a very large area with a lot to see. But I'm curious, what was that always your plan? Or did you just fall in love with the region? Or how did that come about? We were always, I guess, number one, we did enough miles to do about 1.7 circumnavigations. So we certainly zigzagged around a bunch. We were worried that if we said, hey, we're going to go out to circumnavigate, we both came from a very mission-focused um, you know, if there's a do- job given to you, you go and do it. You know, 23 years in the military, time on target. And we didn't want to have that to be the objective. You know, we didn't, oh, we got the circumnavigation t-shirt. For us, we wanted it to be more organic. Let's travel and see where we want to go next. The South Pacific and Micronesia is just so lovely. You're so welcomed. Great with kids. There wasn't a lot of reason to for us to go further. We would have obviously, I mean, we still look at Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia. And, you know, a lot of our friends that have continued on are are in beautiful places. And uh, we'd love to still see those places someday. Who knows? But there's so many places to explore in in the South Pacific that uh, it would take quite a while to get tired of it. I mean, we did three seasons in Fiji and there's still places that I'm like, damn, I never made it to Wanabalavu or, or this place or that place. And there's also something to be said to going back to a place. So, you know, we went to a little village called Yandua uh, in Fiji and um, I do some spearfishing and a friend and I shot this really big fish and we gave it to the village. We took some photos, laminated it, gave it to the to the head man, the Tornikoro and the chief. We go back a year later to go drink kava with these guys and uh, the picture's still up on the chief's wall. And, you know, you're all welcome and the, the old guys would look at the picture of, oh, there's the kefalangi that gave us the fish and... You know, and, and that sense of, 
of belonging was really interesting too. Same in uh, Ilek village in, in the Marshall Islands. You know, they, it took us a while to get to the Northern village where we'd spent some time. We anchored off doing some kite surfing. So they sent sailing canoes down to us saying, Hey, when are you coming up to visit? Um, and uh, you know, so, so there, there's also something to be said for going back and renewing those connections. So a nice balance of new places and, and revisiting friends. Yeah, for sure. And you kind of get to kind of immerse yourself in that sort of larger regional culture. Of course, there's a lot of different cultures uh, in that area, but overall, and I guess, did you always go to New Zealand uh, for hurricane season or, or is it cyclone season? Cyclone season, yeah. So we'd either go to New Zealand or we'd go north to Micronesia. So the other option, rather than going south to get out of that climatic zone, is to go north uh, across the equator. So the Marshall Islands are north of the equator, north of the intertropical convergence zone. So it's a completely different weather system there. So we went up to the Marshalls twice and New Zealand three times. Yeah. So Marshall Islands, that was your starting point for your trip up to Alaska, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that was that's not the traditional route. Sort of the traditional route is through Federated States of Micronesia, Guam, Japan, and then across to the Aleutians, like Atu, or one of those very westernmost little villages in the, in the Aleutians. And that was kind of our plan. Um, and we got we're a little late getting to the Marshalls than we intended that second time. And uh, but we had the intention of doing that big track, and we started looking at how many days at sea we were going to spend. Which you know, days at sea are okay, but it's not the same as traveling and get and doing things ashore. And we realized how much we loved the Marshall Islands. We had a lot of work to do still on the boat. We uh, still had to finish installing our heater system. You know, we had a bunch of rebedding to do. So we said for us, it made more sense to spend two months in the Marshalls just working on the boat and doing a refit and a bunch of time hanging out uh, at a remote atoll kite surfing and hanging out with the locals. And then we just did a straight shot from there to to Dutch Harbor. The advantage of that is, although it's fairly long, it's 2,800 miles through three different weather zones, you're crossing the storm tracks at 90 degrees. So it's a bit like crossing traffic as opposed to walking down the highway because the lows are the post typhoon lows are rolling out of Japan and heading east up towards either the Bering Sea or the Gulf of Alaska. So we were crossing those crossing the street rather than trying to go down the street. Yeah, it sounds like quite a trip considering just even the the different climate change or the change of the, the climate zones that you go to you leave essentially tropics and end up in Alaska, that's going to be a, a rude awakening. <laughs> well, the good thing is with a sailboat, you're traveling slowly. You know, one of the funny stories was uh, Liz and I were off watch. I'm sleeping in the saloon as I normally do when I'm off watch and the, the kids are running the boat. And I could hear them exclaiming about something in the cockpit. And uh, I was like, what is going on? So I pop up into the cockpit and they're like, dad, look at this. <gasps> And they could see their breath for the first time. And that this was a big event. Um, I'm like, okay, well, that, that will get old soon. But uh, yeah, no, it is a more, it is an interesting passage. It's not like a downwind trade wind passage. You know, the trip Mexico to Marquesa is a decent length, but it's not very tactical. Uh, whereas the trip to, to the Aleutians has some, has some nuances to it. So it's certainly a more interesting trip. In that sort of northern part of Alaska, are there a lot of uh, places to stop with a sailboat? Well, on the passage itself, there's nowhere to stop. So once you leave the marshals, you're you're committed. I mean, if you really had a drama, you could bail off downwind and you would end up several thousand miles later in Micronesia. But yeah, no, you need to just keep pressing on to get to Dutch Harbor. There are a few other bailout spots like Atu and a few uh, little anchorages, but but not really. No, it's there's not a lot of ports of there is no ports of refuge on the way up. Right, and once you are in Alaska, because I know a lot of people go obviously from BC to Alaska, but they don't really go that far up the coast. No. They go to southeast Alaska, which is very different. Exactly my point. So how is uh, wait? What is that? Well, the Aleutians. I mean, it's lovely. Um, for us, Alaska at first was just a means to get to get home to BC. Um, and then the more we started exploring it, the more we realized we loved it. You know, the, the fishermen of the Aleutians were so good to us. We were too cheap to get a fishing license and we certainly didn't need it because everybody was giving us fish. We were given so much fish. We had to find other boats to give it to because we couldn't accommodate it all, you know, take us on tours of their boats and explain their lifestyle and in false pass. They wanted us to, to actually, um, they tried to entice us to move there because if they had another few kids, they could get a teacher, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that 
and then the wildlife is just unbelievable. And then we spent uh, most of the summer in either the Alaskan Peninsula or Prince William Sound. And again, you know, we anchored near a glacier for about a week and we saw one boat in the distance over that entire time, you know, surrounded by nature. I mean, a bit unsettling. Sometimes we woke up one morning wondering what the funny sound was around the boat and the whole bay had full, filled full of ice. Um, but, you know, you wait, the tide turns and then the ice leaves again. So, no, it was amazing. We didn't actually get down to... So Glacier Bay is kind of the northern point that most people do of their southeast Alaska trip. For us, we made it south, that far south by the second half of September because we were there late enough we didn't need a permit. And we didn't make it to Prince Rupert until almost November. So we cruised Guayhanas uh, or Haida Gwaii um, in November, which again, not a lot of crowds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet the weather isn't the most uh, forgiving either that time of the year in that area. <laughs> You know, when I used to teach sailing, I said the most dangerous thing on a boat cruising is a schedule. So if you don't have a hard and fast schedule, then you're not pressured into making silly decisions. You know, we've got great anchor and ground tackle. Um, we planned out where we'd go if there was bad weather. And if there's bad weather, you hunker down and you read a book, have a glass of wine, you know, wait for the storm to pass over and then carry on. You know, usually it's those self-inflicted pressures that cause people to do those passages with, with all the traumas. And then speaking of bad weather, possibly, you've now obviously completed your trip and you've returned to Canada, to Vancouver Island, where you are living aboard your sailboat. And as we're recording this, uh, you know, it's winter. So I'm always curious, how have you winterproofed your boat that spent several years in the tropics? Yeah, I mean, boats, fiberglass boats aren't ideal for for living aboard, lots of people do. So it's absolutely doable. You know, I get so many people in my office with this glamorous idea of living aboard their boat. And I do remind them, you do know there's winter, right? Um, you know, it's summer's lovely. But uh, so, I mean, the main one is, you know, we have a, a main heating system, diesel heater, and a backup diesel heater. Um, we've put a few small electric heaters throughout the boat as well to even out things. We run dehumidifiers all the time. Um, and then you know, as much as possible, ensuring there's still some airflow through the boat. There's all sorts. We did a bit of insulation uh, before the Aleutians, but it is hard to effectively insulate a boat. It's doable. People have done a much better job than we have, and we had grand intentions of doing more of that, but um, life got rather hectic once we got back here with work and kids stuff, and uh, we just kind of mostly toughed it out where there are lots of improvements we could have made to the boat that just not high enough on the uh, on the schedule. I'm on everybody else's boat, not my own, to do do things. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, if it's all bearable and then you guys are happy there, you know, the least amount of work you have to do, that's kind of, you know, it's not always a bad thing. <laughs> I've asked this question because I've talked to a few people who, you know, live on their boats in different parts of the world. So I like to ask this. Um, so I've talked to people in California and Australia and different parts of Europe um, about the sort of maybe the general attitude towards liverboards, because I find that it actually changes quite a bit from country to country, maybe even within a country. So how have you found that, that within the Vancouver Island area? I mean, it is tough because it is a very broad category. You know, I volunteer with the Marine Search and Rescue, and uh, one of our frequent customers is the liverboard community. Um, and I realized air quotes don't work well on a podcast. And really, that is an extension of the homeless issue. Um, so you've got, you know, mental illness issues, physical illness issues, boats that are amazing that they're still floating, drifting out into the ferry channels. Um, and but we're all kind of lumped together as all liveaboards. Um, and so it very much is marina dependent. You know, the marina we're in is awesome. Port Sydney Marina. We can't say enough great things about them. Uh, they've totally adopted us. The marina manager buys the kids' birthday presents. And, and on the other hand, you know, when the water main blew and Liz and I were away, it was Victoria, our daughter, who went in the middle of the night with a, with a pipe wrench and, and shut the water off for the entire marina. Uh, so, we, you know, and we're always the first ones to help a boat come in and uh, help people with issues with their boats. And I don't know how many electrical systems I've looked at, uh, you know, when people can't get their shore power working. You know, we like to think it goes both ways, but, uh, you know, Port City Marina has been excellent. It is getting harder and harder to find level board spaces for people. And certainly in the brokerage business, we're, you know, very upfront when people come in with that dream to say, hey, it's, it is difficult. We have had clients get liveaboard spots, but 
it's not a guarantee and they need to do their homework and be advocates for themselves. And um, it does it does take time. Yeah, for sure. It takes uh, some shopping around and then quite possibly a, a good amount of luck as well. But uh, yeah. it is interesting about that uh, sort of, shall we call, call it a branding issue of Liverpools because they do get lumped in, especially in Canada and BC, together with, uh, you know, the group of derelict boats that are out there as well. Um, I've talked to other people in Australia where I was like, oh, it's lovely. And, you know, regional, obviously, but, uh, you know, every region and, and area has their own issues for sure. But uh, that's great that you've uh, found a marina and you like it. And I'm curious, what kind of facilities were important for you when you were looking for a marina that was going to be your home area, your your front yard and your backyard? Well, our, our biggest criteria is one that would take us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because um, it was a challenge and it was a big stressor. And, uh, and again, Port Sydney stepped up. This was our first choice. And initially, the, we were told there were so many, so many people on the waiting list. They wouldn't even put us on the waiting list when we started inquiring about a year out. We we're still in the surreal. We we're in Fiji, making folk call, calls and emails to uh, to find space. Uh, so we started well early. I mean, for us, one of the main catalysts for coming back to Canada was for the the kids to do some sort of bricks and mortar high school. They'd read about high school and they decided they wanted to do some. And so we didn't want to be moving around all the time. And so, cause that would have been totally doable. Otherwise we could have, there's lots of places that have a winter program. You get the dock over the winter when it's a bit miserable to be at anchor and then just cruise all summer. But that doesn't work for people coming and going to high school or doesn't work as well for people coming and going to high school. So we wanted a place that the kids could commute to high school easily by bicycle. And then there's things that are pure luxury. Like there's a grocery store, a 10 minute walk. We're not doing massive dinghy trips and hikes ashore with you know, uh, groceries like we've done in the past. I don't know, and other things. Yeah, that that was the big one that the children could easily get to school. I wanted to be able to walk out and do most of what I, most of the errands I would need to do on foot rather than needing to drive everywhere. So it was ideal that the place that had room for us is also the place, the place that we had envisioned, which was right in the center of town, Many services are close by, and we need it. We have a car. You need it to drive all all the way, quote unquote, into Victoria. But so much of what we can do, we can do from right here. Whereas even the other marina in Sydney, you can't really walk to the grocery store. You could, you know, like everything is a little bit farther. And so we were we were hoping to be a little more central. And the funny thing was, in terms of small world, when we first started making inquiries, we were sharing a dock in Fiji with another boat from Victoria who was giving us contact details for the marina they had left from and insights on other places we might consider calling. So it was neat in that kind of small world way of cruising that uh, we had insights from other cruisers that were from our own home destination. And, and that's where groups like the Ocean Cruising Club or, um, so you know, we've been Ocean Cruising Club members for a long time. I'm one of the mentors for, for new cruisers there. Or you know, Seven Seas Cruising Association, where the cruising hosts for this area, um, also can help. You know, they can't necessarily intervene for you with the marinas, but they can give you that local insights on the ground. You know, here's the advantages. Like I couldn't imagine just showing up in Vancouver, for instance. Um, you know, just because oh, it's uh, you know, you find out it's a marina way up the Fraser or something, or it's you know, right in False Creek. So um, local knowledge sometimes is great, and that's where those those connections can really help guide people on where they want to be yeah that's interesting what is the you said seven seas cruiser seven association? Seas cruising association is a is a, another one of these cruising associations kind of american centric we haven't done as much with it like we are the cruising hosts for the area for them we've done more, a lot more stuff with the ocean cruising club which is a british-based group kind of one of these yacht clubs without a facility and spread around the world sort of like-minded people um so that that's been kind of fun Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. 
BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So before we move on to the broker questions, because you're also a broker, so I got a lot to ask about that one. I do want to ask your uh, internet setup there uh, in your marina or on your boat, because it seems like we have a, a pretty good connection. So I always like to ask, like, well, what do you guys do for internet? Yeah, we're lucky the, the whole marina is uh, wired for cable internet. Uh, so we, having spent seven and a half years where internet was this highly rationed, highly stressed thing, like, you know, oh my God, Windows has just taken a hundred dollars worth of our internet or something. Um, or, I mean, sometimes it was really sh social, especially before there was a lot more data avail available over cellular, you know, in Ma Madro in the capital of the Marshalls, we'd all go to the same hotel lobby and everybody would be sitting there with their laptops on their, on their knees whether you know it was a big expedition boat trying to coordinate its clients coming on or us trying to do banking or ordering boat parts and of course as part of the deal you'd you know buy a few drinks at their hotel so it was a big social event we went back up two years later and they'd uh, you could get data over your cellular phone um, and everybody's just on their boats doing all of those it was so a lot more convenient but not quite as social but yeah internet traveling is is a challenge um, it is getting better but yeah it was kind of surreal for us to plug in the boat and um have unlimited internet and you can watch movies and, you know in facebook you'd like be has you'd be careful not to ever touch the video button because all your bandwidth would disappear and now now we're too busy to watch videos <laughs> so i like i mentioned i am sort of boat shopping or hoping to be in the in the near future and i have a uh, very little idea of the actual process that happens when you actually work with a broker so i'm hoping you can help me out with this uh, with a few questions um yeah. and and really the first one is what is the order of things in the purchase process like at which point does money exchange hands because from what i've seen from watching from afar you know there's and maybe we can even change this is that the right uh order of things like there's you know make an offer it gets accepted, there's a survey, there's a C trial, there's a possible renegotiation of the price, and then you formalize the offer or Yeah. I like to start well earlier than that. Even if somebody shows up in the office and say, Hey, I'm looking for a Hylas 49. I'm like, awesome, you know, great boat. But let's just dial it back a few notches um, and see, you know, what, you know, going back to our professional background, what's the mission? What do you want to go do with this boat? And let's just look and see is that the right tool for the job. You know, a classic example, I had a young couple come into the office last year with this awesome 50-foot South African Lavrano steel boat, needed some work, but a real ocean greyhound. And they came in and said, well, we want to see the Lavranos. I'm like, oh, awesome, I love that boat. Uh, and I said, so what do you want to do? Oh, you know, maybe someday we'll go offshore, but really we want to just go around the Gulf Islands and we're so busy and we've got a business up here and we've got a business down here and kids. I'm like, Oh my God, don't buy this boat. It's going to suck the life out of you. Like it's, it's going to need maintenance. The learning curve is going to be so steep. It's going to stress you out in the marinas. It's, it's the wrong boat. And so that's not to say that everybody comes in looking for a specific type of boat is, has got the wrong boat in mind, but I always like to go back a few steps and let's just see what do you want to accomplish with it? And then not just jump to brands, but let's just see, well, what does that mean? You know, so I talk about the mission. Like what, where do you want to go? And then the constraints. Okay. How many people need to come? How does it need to be turnkey or are you, you know, on one side or, you know, I've helped an awesome family that are now in Mexico buy a, a big, but old boat that needed like a year's worth of work. And that was perfect for them. We found them a project boat, you know, for a lot of people that would be a disaster. So, you know, what are the constraints? The other constraint of, you know, geographic, does it have to be here or can we find the right boat for you in Mexico or Grenada or French Polynesia? Um, and then the other constraint that everybody has, there's going to be a budget um, and then get an understanding of what's the real budget for the boat. Because you always want to leave a significant margin for arisings, for making the boat your own, making it more cruiser ready or 
whatever you want to go do. Um, so I, I like to start there before we even start looking at specific listings online. Once we've got a good idea of what we want, then we start well, start looking online and start seeing what's out there. Um, and so sometimes it's the client is sending me listings. Hey, I saw this boat. What do you think? Or sometimes I go through and I'll do a search and I'll say, here's 10 kind of representative boats. And I tell them, hey, I'm not offended if you don't like them because it's kind of me getting calibrated to their desires. So I'll send them, just say I send them a motor sailor. They're like, oh, we don't want that. Okay, great. No motor sailors. Um, and, uh, and we kind of get an idea of what they're looking for. Once we then identify a boat that's of interest, uh, I'll generally call the broker directly. I like to talk to people on the telephone. I know it's kind of old school, not just sending emails or WhatsApp texts. But I find talking to the brokers, I get a better genuine sense of the boat. Because really it's no to his or her, no, or not to their advantage to upsell the boat a bit. Because we're going to find out if it's a disaster at the survey stage anyway. And we're just going to waste everybody's time and money and uh, everybody's going to be unhappy. So I generally find at least within the Pacific Northwest, as you get into Florida, California, it's a little different sometimes, but uh, a, a better sense of the vessel. If it's a local boat, awesome. Then we, you know, arrange for appointment. We go look at it. If it's, uh, you know, overseas and Grenada or whatever, we might do a Zoom viewing of it. Uh, I have reps in various places. So sometimes I'll get my rep in that area, just hire them by the day. They'll go and uh, do the Zoom showing of the boat for us. So just a little bit, one step more remote. And then, so at that point, we've either identified, yeah, we're interested or not. Depending on people's risk tolerance, we may put an offer in at that point. Uh, I'll go back and look at all the sold boat data. Uh, so doing a market analysis, see what else is on the market. But I very much like to focus on historical data, look at averages, look at what the cost drivers up, especially, you know, in the catamaran market. If it's ex-charter, you know, it's a cost driver down. Okay, they've done a big upgrade and added this, this, and this lithium, whatever. Okay, those are cost drivers up. And try to get a sense of of what a realistic price should be. Then we present an offer, do that up on, you know, British Columbia Yacht Brokers Association paperwork. So yeah, we if we've decided, or actually we'll do the showing or like the viewing of the boat. Um, there's really three questions I tell people we're, we're trying to answer at that point. The first two questions are, is this the right boat for what you want to do? You know, if it's a, a family, and you say, hey, does it really have enough space for what you want to do? Is it going to sail the way you want to sail it? Then the second one, is it in a condition you're comfortable with? We talked about some people need turnkeys, some people are happy with projects. And if those two questions are yes, then what is it worth to us? And so that's you know one of the questions out of the viewing. We combine that with the, the, the market analysis, come up with an offer. In there, there'll be conditions. So the three that I always recommend at least is you know, there'll be a sea trial, there'll be a survey, and there'll be a mechanical inspection. Depending on the vessel, we might add a rigging inspection. Some people might have financing requirements, so add financing, and that's kind of the main ones there. We present the offer, may or may not get accepted. There may be some negotiation. Um, we help through that whole process, and then eventually we'll have an accepted offer. We use a titling company for all the money, business, and any purchase we do. So just say it was a boat in, in Mexico, rather than the deposit, 10% deposit is kind of the industry standard. Rather than that deposit going to Mexico, it stays with a Canadian titling firm, a bonded firm up here. And um, that company will also do all the vessel documentation, the registration or licensing and the lien searches and all of that stuff. And it's nice just having a company that does it for a living because um, they're good at it and lets brokers focus on boat stuff. Uh, for American clients or American boats, there's a company we use in America as well. Uh, so that, um, you know, for our American clients, all the, the funds stay in America till the very end. Uh, so we've organized our due diligence stuff, the C survey, sea trial, mechanical inspection. We go through those. We help our clients find reputable surveyors and mechanics. If it's local, it's easy. We've got a great network of, of guys we use. I always like the buyer to be the one to pick the, the surveyor, but we provide, provide a short list. It is kind of the Wild West for surveyors, you know, anybody... I could print up business cards and say I'm a surveyor. Nobody can say I'm not. But uh, there are some really good ones out there. I like to use a surveyor that's able to provide context as well. They're, that are good educators. So it's great that they're technically proficient 
and you know you do a survey of a vessel there's going to be a long list of stuff you know we just did a beautiful 2018 uh, sailboat there's a long list of stuff but most of it is just it's a used boat there's going to be corroded hose clamps and shave here and there and that's part of owning a boat is is doing maintenance so a good surveyor is able to provide context and say hey you know keel boat stuff bad you know maybe you should walk away from the deal or this is just a maintenance thing or this is something in the middle that we should be looking at a concession from the uh, from the seller so yeah survey uh same similar idea with the mechanical sea trial is generally myself and the clients go out make sure the boat is at acting as uh, as advertised and exercise all the functions, sales up and down, do some tax and jibe, run the wind list, the electronics. Sometimes there's duplication to what the surveyor is doing. Like he's also going to check some of the electrical and the wind list, but it's nice for us to, to see that ourselves. We get through all those due diligence checks, then there may be another bit of negotiation at that point. And then if everybody's happy, we do lifting of the conditions. Basically, we get them to sign something to say they're happy with those. And that goes to the titling firm and uh, he or she does up um, statements on what money should be transferred. And then the, um, the buyer sends the remainder of the funds to the titling agency. The titling agency disperses it to the seller and the brokers. So there is a lot of moving pieces there. Yeah, but it's all logical. And it's, you know, our job to explain it and help them through those stages and at every decision point you know, provide that, that background. And if we don't have the answers, then, you know, find the people, you know, I've sold several wooden boats that, um, and I'm, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer by profession. I'm happy with steel and fiberglass and aluminum. I'm, uh, I don't pretend to have a big depth with wooden vessels. Uh, well, we've got a, you know, a shop here. That's all they do is restore beautiful classic boats. So we bring, bring them in to do that bit of analysis. So, there's, we're quite lucky here in Sydney. There's a lot of depth for a small place, very, a, a lot of depth in the marine industry. Uh, so we just tie into those guys to, to provide that guidance for our clients. Yeah. How long would you say that the purchase process typically is with all these, you know, surveys and sea trials and all of that? Because sometimes it sounds like it can take a while. Yeah. From presenting an offer to close is about four weeks. And a lot of that is the surveyors are so busy these days. That's our that's our critical path is getting the surveyors booked. And then, but it can take longer. Just say we picked up something in the survey and something needs to get rectified. Well, that adds time. And then when you add the search part ahead of that, it could be years depending on the degree of urgency and how particular they are on on what vessel they're looking for. And that's very much the the buyer's decision of, of how how much intensity they want to put into the search. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, we were thinking of my partner and I sort of, maybe we should consider a 36 foot boat and it's a little bit smaller than we've uh, thought about so far, but we've actually never been on one and we're like, oh, well, we should probably, you know, wait till the snow melts a little bit and go, go to the Great Lakes to uh, check one out in person before we start diving yes. too deep down into this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny how, you know, size. So if somebody's buying a boat as, as a, a recreational thing they're going to go spend a week or two out in the summer and occasional weekends i always encourage them to go as small as practical i mean it's funny as a broker obviously 100 commission business i make more money when people buy great big expensive boats but the reality is for most people going bigger doesn't increase their enjoyment um you know it's harder maneuver it's more expensive the the sailing loads are higher obviously a lot more comfortable on the other hand, when people are talking about doing extended cruising, doing, you know, live aboard, then I do encourage them if it fits within the budget that, you know, that extra space uh, is a huge quality of life thing. So I'm thinking about the, the family in, in Mexico. They were looking at 37, that are in Mexico now, 37 foot boat, um, the two little kids. And so, you know, the kids are going to get bigger and they're going to get more stuff. And that's where we talked about it and looked at stuff and helped them buy a 45-foot boat, but needed lots of work. So it still fit within their budget envelope, but they put a huge amount of sweat equity into it over a year. But they're in Mexico on their 45-foot boat. And again, it all comes down to what, what do you want to accomplish and what are your constraints and, um, and what are your, what's your comfort zone? Um, we traveled all over the Gulf Islands when the kids were one and three uh, in a 27-foot boat. And uh, we had a great time. But it was very much camping, and uh, we did it a week to two weeks at a time. 
but that wouldn't have been our choice to cross the Pacific. Seaworthiness aside, just from a pure habitability perspective. Yeah, exactly. And and you did cross your boat as 47 feet, right? 47 feet. So you got way more room for that. Although I'm sure still space is at a premium for five people. So. We were the smallest kid boat, really, that we knew in the Pacific. A lot of people are out on catamarans. If they're on a monohull, they're, you know, into the 50s. And it's all it's all relative. When we first started looking in Halifax, a broker said to us, Oh, two people, I wouldn't go much bigger than 39 foot. And we're like, we will never fit there. But thank you for your input, you know, it was. Um, but the, yeah, so it's it's been a good sweet spot for us. But definitely, there are families with more space and more comfort on slightly larger boats. Yeah. Yeah, the brokerage, it was an interesting uh, introduction to brokerage when we started shopping. And not a very I mean, our broker that we did end up with, in Halifax was awesome, but it took us a while to get to them. But there's not a lot of brokers that have actually been fortunate enough to do extended travel in boats. So they know the technical side of boats. They may be awesome racers, but they haven't had a chance to to extended cruising. They haven't been liveaboards. So we had all sorts of bad information from brokers in the East Coast when we talked to them. And then I go down to places like Annapolis to where there's more cruising boats to look at. And um, huge attitude like oh you don't want to buy a half million dollar boat why am i talking to you you're not ready to 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 buy right now no no i'm looking to buy in a year yeah like talk to the hand whatever um and yeah it was hard to be hard to be taken seriously at, at that point and so yeah it wasn't uh, it is ironic that i've ended up becoming a broker because i wasn't very impressed with the industry uh when we started well, I think you have a great background because you do have that extended cruising experience and you are an active current liveaboard. So it only makes sense that you, know, yeah, you would so share that experience. I just think it is ironic. <laughs> I was going to say it's nice to keep our mind and engagement in the cruising community. Like we're not offshore right now, but being able to talk to other people, help them get ready, help them think through what do they need to do to prepare that kind of thing is, is just kind of nice as well to, to keep us in the world of cruising offshore. And cruisers were so good to us when we started, like that first year of cruising was something else. I mean, it was funny. We didn't come into it as inexperienced sailors. I was running the military sail training program, you know, master ocean, blah, 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 lots of pieces of paper. I'd never owned a boat before. And, uh, yeah, we were just one disaster after another and everybody else in the cruising community really leaned forward to help us. And I remember thinking at one point, oh my God, I don't want to be this guy forever that is always needing help. Um, so it was fun as time progressed that we were starting to help other people and it kind of all balanced out. And, and that's really the cruising community is so much just helping each other. And the more remote you get with your boat, the more the community collects together because it's almost like the pioneer communities, right? You somebody's barn burns down, you all get together and build another barn. You know, somebody's got an issue with their diesel engine. Well, everybody's going to be there and try to help. So yeah, we were super impressed with the cruising community and kind of keeps us connected a bit. If we can help people uh, head out, like, like people helped us. That's been, that's been fun. Oh, that's lovely. You're kind of paying it forward uh, from, from based on your own experience. Yeah. Um, I I know a couple of people who are also bow shopping and uh, they're a few steps ahead of me because they're actually making offers already. And, yeah. and one of them said to me the other day, like, oh, our offer wasn't accepted. They they had an, a, another offer. So I'm curious what happens sort of behind the scenes when there are mul multiple buyers or bidders. So the way we run it as a company, and that's not necessarily the same across the, the whole industry, is when we get an offer, we present it to the seller. We don't do like real estate. Oh, we're accepting offers till Friday and get a, we like, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't want to work in an industry like that. I don't want to do bidding war. It's like, yeah, I'm relying on this to earn a living, but I don't want to work in that environment. Thank you. Uh, so what we do is first offer in is the one that's presented. We will take backup offers. So we'll have, in fact, one of the boats I've got here, I had two backup offers. The other two were actually for one for full price and one for more than asking. And the first one in was lower, but that was the one that we presented. But yeah, we deal with them one at a time. Now, if they come in at about the same time, then I will present all of them. And then it's very much up to up to the seller. So if it's straight, if everything else is the same, the conditions are the same, timelines are the same, and it's a money thing, well, obviously the seller is going to take the one, get more money, get, 
Um, people don't necessarily make money out of boats, but at least it dulls the pain when they sell it later. And then it comes down to conditions, you know, if um, or a timeline. Somebody says, "Hey, we don't want to close for two months." Well, that's a there's a degree of risk for the seller that maybe the person will walk. Uh, so maybe he'll take one lower, or if he's put, you know, conditional on, you know, one of the ones that we recommend not doing now is, you know, conditional on moorage um, because there's not a lot of moorage. So that one is, you know, that there's higher risk to the seller. Um, you know, so if my client is the seller, then, you know, we'll say, hey, just in case you haven't heard, there's not a lot of moorage. So there's a risk that this deal will not see itself through to completion. Or what we'll do is then maybe recommend that they tailor it a bit. So there'll be a lifting of conditions date. We're going to do everything done by a certain date. Maybe we'll tier it a bit. So moorage needs to be figured out within the first week or something. So they can't wait a month and say, oh, you know what? There's no, I, there's no moorage. I don't want the boat. And uh, the seller is out a month of marketing time. But generally, we prefer to just get an offer and we, we send it up to the up to the seller and leave it up to them. So you mentioned bidding wars are not hopefully a thing, at least in the same extent that we have in the real estate market. But uh, is it common to offer over asking? No. You know, the rule of thumb used to be about 10%. You're looking at the last two years, it's about 5% below ask. And what I like to do is not just rely on a percentage number, but that analysis of what should the boat have been listed for. Uh, especially with private sales, we've been seeing folks getting greedy. They've heard that it's a hot market and they pull whatever wreck they've got out of their barn and put some ludicrous price on it. And so offering 5% below ask there is still a ludicrous price. And so go back and look, okay, really, what should it be worth? Now, it's not, that makes it sound very scientific. There's limited data depending on the, the vessel type, but uh, generally it's a little bit below ask. But again, it depends on on the boat, you know. Um, we just brought a boat in. Well, we've had several boats sell before we get them online. So we brought a boat in on Friday. I had five showings of it on uh, yesterday um, and an offer and another potential backup offer. And we haven't even started writing the listing yet. They are moving quickly. Yeah, that was going to be my question. So I'm glad you answered that because it sounds like it is indeed a hot market and things or boats kind of go away before they ever make it to, say, Yacht World or, or you know, the public. Yeah. Uh, listing site. So that's, uh, of course, another benefit to be connected uh, to a broker before you start uh, seriously uh, shopping as well. And you obviously you're you know, in Victoria or in Sydney, so not far from the US border. I'm curious, if you buy a boat from the US as a Canadian, is it a big pain uh, paperwork wise? Or no, we do a lot of it. I mean, closest port of entry to my office is 10 nautical miles away. Uh, so we do a lot of cross border work. Um, pretty much 50-50 exporting boats to the States and bringing boats in. There's additional costs. So I, you know, I write up a spreadsheet for folks of like, here's where I'm seeing all the costs just so they can look at it realistically. So if they're looking at lower priced vessels, sometimes it becomes not worthwhile. Um, like any cost saving, unless they desperately want that particular boat and it's not available up here. The higher valued vessels, then generally it becomes a wash. But you need to look at, you know, your transportation costs getting there. You're going to want to go see the boat generally. You're going to hopefully be there for the survey and the sea trial. Uh, not always, but I certainly recommend it. Uh, the survey and mechanical cost more in the States. Uh, the titling firm in the States costs more. Um, just the rules are more strict for deregistering a U.S. Coast Guard documented boat. Uh, and then potential import duties. You know, if it's not a NAFTA boat, uh, then you're liable for 9.5% import duties bringing the boat in. So that all needs to be taken into, into account. The process itself is relatively straightforward, but I always want people to understand there's, there's an overhead cost to doing it, and they need to look at that all-in cost to see does it, is it still as good as a deal as it looks. And that's just in the Pacific Northwest. You know, We get it all the time. Somebody walks in the office, I see such and such in Florida. It's such a great deal. I want it. And then we're, okay, yep, but one, it's going to, going to have more UV, more usage, however many hurricanes. Um, oh, it's in Florida. Uh, so if you want a boat in Florida, that's fine. And I've sold, I've, I've helped people buy boats in Florida. And it's totally doable, but that was for a boat that they wanted to cruise Florida and the, and the Bahamas. But if they want it back here, now you're looking, we haven't done one in a few months, but at least 20,000 US 
to ship the boat across the country, plus, you know, two days in the yard either side to take the mast off. So it adds up really quickly. Again, it's doable, but does it does it make sense? And the only way to, to know that is to look at those all-in costs and uh, see, does it make sense? You know, a Florida boat's unlikely to have a diesel heater. You know, it's unlikely to, you know, have a lot of those things, won't have the same bimini, dav- or bimini structure. Rain enclosure. You won't have rain enclosure. And again, those are all things you can add, but, you know, 20K for this, 20K for that. All of a sudden, your cost savings disappear pretty quickly. But we do it, but we just want the people to go into it eyes open and understand what, what the implications are. Yeah, exactly. If it's in the budget, then, you know, all good. But, you know, if it comes a surprise, then that's uh, that's less of a... <laughs> that's not so good. So you obviously, you've talked about, you know, helping other people find boats in uh, various parts of uh, North America. Um, or the world. So you obviously work as a kind of a buyer's broker as well as a seller's broker locally in, in Sydney area? Yeah. So, I mean, like everybody else, I have listings for sailboats and powerboat. But then the fun part of the job is really the buyer's broker role because it is that more finding the requirement, like the, helping define the requirements and finding that that vessel will meet them. Out of I'm the only one in the company that really does a lot of those trying to find the right boat in a cruising destination for a lot of people. If what they really want to do is cruise Mexico and they're looking at boats, well, actually two winters ago, I had a family in the middle of winter and we looked at all sorts of boats, monohulls and catamarans and like all over the map, you know, hundred thousand dollar boats, $800,000 boats. And I said, this is fun, but at a certain point we need to get a little more focused. So over dinners, okay, what, what really do you want? And they want to, we want to be outside of Canada in the tropics on a catamaran. Well, let's buy a catamaran in the tropics and like, let's not buy one here. So about six weeks later, they were on their catamaran in Grenada and um, we got them sailing instructor down there and they, you know, yeah, living on their boat. So it really comes down to what's, what do they really want to accomplish? Uh, For most people, they do want a boat up here. They want to work on the boat and learn here and then do the trek down to Mexico. So it's all about what, uh, what do they want to do? Of course, start Start in the Mediterranean, do a bit of Mediterranean, especially on our new boat side. Um, you know, so pick up the boat at the factory, sail the Med for a bit, and then once they really know their boat, off to the Caribbean and and progress from there. So it all comes back to what do you want to do? Exactly. Well, thank you for all of that. This has been uh, tremendously informational and educational. So if anyone listening uh, is in the stage of needing a boat. Uh, in the next little while, how can they get in touch with you and, and learn more? Email is always good. Um, so you've got my email address, max at yachtsaleswest.com. And uh, it's old school. They can give me a call. Uh, but email is generally more reliable. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful to learn about all these things. All right. Well, thank you, Annika. It's been good. It's been great fun. Thank you. I hope you found this episode useful. If you want to learn more about Max and Elizabeth's sailing adventures, you can check out their blog, which I have linked below in the description. In this episode, we also talked briefly about surveys. And if you are looking for more details on how surveys work, check out an earlier episode from season one, episode nine, where I interview a surveyor. Next week, it's time to head to Europe and we'll hear about sailing in the Greek islands. If you'd like to support the show and get access to some exclusive content, please check out Liverboard Sailing Podcast on Patreon.com. And of course, you're very welcome to join the community on Instagram and Facebook as well. That's all for today. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.